Hello and welcome to season two of Man Down, the anti-Man Up movement. My name is Jamie Clements and I'm going to be speaking to more incredible individuals from all backgrounds, all walks of life about their own journeys through mental health and what we can actually do better to look after ourselves. The goal of Man Down is to show that vulnerability is rooted in courage, rooted in strength and not in weakness and we're here to open up these conversations to reduce the stigma around talking about mental health and showing everyone that it is okay to talk about this stuff. This is Man Down. The episode is going to kick off in a second guys, we're just going to take a quick minute to hear from our sponsors and our partners. When was the last time your phone buzzed with a not very necessary notification? When was the last time you picked your phone up just to check a message and somehow ended up on an Instagram scrollathon? Look, you might not realize it, but you're probably addicted to your phone. And now with all of our meetings moving online, we're stuck in front of a screen all day. We're trapped in this endless vortex of Zoom calls, TikTok videos, and apps like Slack that require us to be always available, always on. And it's making it really difficult to switch off. Now this is where Unplugged comes in. The guys at Unplugged have created a space for busy city workers like you to take some true time offline with a three-day digital detox at their beautiful off-grid cabins just one hour from London. So if you're someone that's always on and the idea of actually locking your phone away for three days either terrifies you or feels like something you need right now, then you're probably in need of some true time offline with Unplugged. So if this sounds like something for you, head to www.unplugged.rest and use the code MANDOWN when you book and you get a beautiful food hamper for your stay. So all you need to do is turn up and switch off. I am incredibly proud to say that Man Down is brought to you in partnership with Better, a charity raising awareness around mental health and suicide prevention through a range of exciting events and initiatives. Please head over to www.better.org.uk, that's B-E-D-E-R, or find them on Instagram at better underscore UK. Hi everyone and welcome back to what is another episode of Man Down. Thanks again for, for joining us. I'm really, really excited for, for today's episode uh, and excited for you to hear this conversation. So uh, today I am joined by Dr. Antonis Kasoulis, who is the Director for England and Wales at the Mental Health Foundation. He is an experienced public health professional and a leading thinker on mental health and prevention, promotion and inequalities in the UK. Antonis is a doctor with an academic background in public health, having spent time in academia, the third sector and government. So as far as people to talk to on this topic from a national, international policy, governmental, public sector perspective. I can't think of, of anybody better. And I'm, I'm really, really glad to, to have him on the show. But before we dive into um, what is going to be a fascinating conversation, Antonis, thank you for being here. How are you? No, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure, a pleasure to do this. Um, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, I, I want to say I'm fine. And, <laughs> but you know, I think we're everyone is dealing with a lot at the moment. And um, yeah, but um, I, you know, hanging in there as, as everyone. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And um, from, I guess, a, a personal and maybe a professional perspective, how have the last, whatever it is now, eight, eight or nine months been for, for you as an individual and your own experience, but also for, for the Mental Health Foundation and the work that you've been doing? I think it's, um, it's been interest, shall we say. Uh, 
uh, work has been quite intense. Um, uh, I think a lot of us in public health have been expecting a big pandemic, but uh, we, no, we haven't necessarily seen you know, the measures to prevent that. Um, so we now have a big pandemic and uh, the, the impact is quite huge you know, in many aspects of our lives. So um, yeah, I think work has been um, a little bit non-stop. I mean, we, we're trying really hard at the foundation to um, be quite a strong voice in research and policy at this time. Um, and personally, I'm uh, uh, kind of making the most of every opportunity to kind of see family and uh, when I can and kind of take breaks and, uh, and look after myself, you know, for, for the long run, because, you know, we are in it for the long run. So, um, yeah, I think uh, getting there, it's a constant adjustment, isn't it? How, how, how has it been for you? Uh, yeah, it's been, um, as someone who is quite... Uh, I suppose aware of and in tune with my my mental and emotional well-being I've I've felt the the full range of of this experience like it's been up and it's been down and there have been days where I'm like you know what this is fine like I, I can do this and then other days where you know existential dread sets in as we, yeah, <laughs> yeah as and as we're recording this you know we've got the the US election imminent yeah. and and all of this stuff going on on a global scale that isn't purely pandemic related so there's mm. a lot going on and that's the message that i've tried to get across not only to myself but also to um others you know podcast or or just friends is like if you're feeling uneasy and if you're feeling up and down and round and round so is everybody else and yeah, yeah. and unf it's an unfortunate you know uh, side effect and, and consequence of, of what we've been going through so all in all definitely. yeah pretty pretty good um but definitely aware of uh i've had to be more aware and more conscious of um managing it i think and sort of putting um, i'm sure we'll go into this putting preventative measures in place for myself yes. on a personal <laughs> level to make Great. sure that i don't <laughs> drop into that so um i guess from you know from that introduction um People may be familiar with the Mental Health Foundation or they, they might not be. Um, I mean, they should be and they should definitely go and check <laughs> check everything everything and the work that you guys are doing out. But could you just explain a little bit more about the, the foundation and the work that you guys do? Yeah, of course. Um, so the Mental Health Foundation is um, a 71-year-old charity. We were quite excited last year. We had our 70th anniversary. Um, so it's one of the of the large, it's one of the oldest mental health um, uh, organizations in the world, um, really from that point of view. Um, and we were set up just um, a year after the NHS in the UK. Um, and it's interesting because the initial interest back then was kind of to uh, our founder Derek Richter. He had that interest of um, increasing the parity of esteem between mental and physical health. And he was talking about, you know, how much more money needs to go to mental health compared to what goes to other areas like, you know, cancer or um, um, tuberculosis or whatever. And uh, um, also he was talking about the impact of trauma and poverty and things like that on, on mental health. Um, obviously the war was quite recent then. So um, over the years we have evolved in many ways, obviously as an organization, but I think some of that initial ethos is still there. 
And I think looking at mental health from that lens of not neglecting it compared to physical health is still here. Looking at things like trauma and, and inequality and poverty is very strongly part of our agenda. But we are the, the public mental health charity of the UK. We operate across the UK offices um, uh, across the four nations and um, we work um, with a kind of firmly public mental health strategy. So that means that we do value the work that the NHS and the clinical services are doing, of course. Uh, we do think it's important, but our focus is on what is happening essentially outside of the clinical services system. Um, so where, where are we spending our time, most of our time in um, uh, different settings, uh, you know, what kind of mental health support we could have there, how we could, what kind of structural changes we could achieve to improve mental health, what kind of research we need to do to understand better the causes of mental health and what and mental ill health and, and what works to prevent problems and intervene early. Um, so, uh, and we run Mental Health Awareness Week. People may be familiar with the week, even if they're not familiar with the foundation. So we've been running it since 2001. We set the theme every year and obviously many people join across uh, the country and internationally, I should say. Um, and um, yeah, so a strong focus on increasing awareness, um, uh, tackling some of the structural issues that exist and which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about and uh, doing um, uh, research and understanding kind of the evidence um, uh, really well. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. And um, it's, it's a strange one because obviously being in this space myself, I think I was familiar with, you know, mind, calm, MQ, sort of the, I suppose the, I, I don't even know what the difference really is, but those charities that seem to be in the limelight a little bit more and less familiar with you guys who have obviously been around for, I didn't even know, you know, there was mental health charities 70 years ago. Like that's yeah. fascinating. So I think it's, um, it's great to sort of bring some more awareness to the work that you guys are doing, because I think while those other charities are doing incredible work and I would never want to undermine yeah, that, absolutely. I think when it comes to, the people who might be able to make real change from a structural and systemic level, then we're probably talking to him. So it's, um, yeah. And how, how did, how did this come about for you? Was, was mental health always the focus of your, or your work? Like how, what was the path into working for the foundation? Um, I think I've had, you know, one of those interesting journeys and maybe, you know, if there's a young professional listening, uh, you know, I feel there's always a nice message in terms of how people end up in a career, in the career they are in. Um, but I, I trained as a medical doctor. Uh, my background, I, I'm, a, I'm a doctor by background. And uh, shortly after um, my degree, I went into sort of academic work and increasingly sort of public health work. Um, and I've done some work internationally and some international projects. Um, and um, my um, background really is much more kind of general public health um, uh, expertise. So, you know, all these kind of non-clinical, you know, prevention campaigning kind of elements. Um, and in that capacity, I've worked in academia and um, uh, worked with various universities internationally as well. And in the um, kind of a research center of the Department of Health in the UK as well as um, deputy director there. Uh, but um, I, mental health has always been quite close to my heart as a, as a topic. And I think that I've really appreciated kind of the shift in the past few years that we have seen as a public health and as a health sector more broadly towards mental health. Um, so with the foundation shifting more and more into public mental health and looking for some public health 
discipline, if you like, to add to its work. I was kind of that, that was kind of the match. You know, they were looking for some public health um, expertise. I was looking for some, you know, mental health related kind of work, and it, it was a perfect match. But that was five years ago, and I've been with the foundation for about five years now. Um, and I kind of see myself now, you know, as a passionate kind of public mental health <laughs> specialist, even though my background is really as a public health specialist. Um, so. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's, it's been an interesting journey for me, but kind of finding finding that passion and finding that mission, if you like, is just really important for me. Just working for a cause that means a lot is just really important for me, and uh, that's how I got here. Sure, no, it's, it's fascinating. I think, um, I guess, in in the five years you've been with the the foundation now, I certainly feel that. And I think everyone's quite aware now, which is great that the conversation and the awareness around mental health has increased exponentially, which is yeah. much needed. But from someone who's been there for five years and sort of had a passion beyond that, that time as well, how have you seen the awareness at a public health level sort of change and, and how has that conversation changed? Is it, is it very much at the forefront of people's minds now? Yeah, I would say so. I think there's always a risk of bias with us working in a sector. You know, there's always, we're always too close to a topic. Um, but I think with mental health, is it's very visible. I think the change has been very visible, mainly the change in interest. Um, and um, obviously we've had people in, we had, you know, MPs, we had a prime minister talking about mental health, which is was very new. We've had academics kind of moving in that space. We have new big funded networks, academic kind of research council networks, completely new, you know, millions of pounds into that. We've seen large, large funders in the UK, like the Wellcome Trust, the, the National Lottery Community Fund, kind of investing a lot of money into mental health, which was new. So there are all these, you know, little points, or, or not, not so little when you talk about hundreds of millions of pounds in some cases, but kind of all these points that kind of show clearly that shift. Um, we have other metrics as well. I mean, even if, you, if we just look at our own metrics of Mental Health Awareness Week and how many people we engage and we reach, it's been exponentially increasing every year. Every year we say this has been the most successful Mental Health Awareness Week of all time. And, and the next year is always better <laughs> um, every single year in the past few years. Um, obviously you have, um, I mean, you see the conversation changing. I'm not sure that the language has completely changed, but there is a positive move. You have the royals, you have celebrities, um, you know, talking about their own experience, that's, that's potentially massive, you know, they have big kind of demographics following them. Um, and yeah, and on the training side of things as well, I mean, the, the change I've noticed, especially in the past uh, sort of five years um, of MSc programs cropping up, you know, undergrad programs uh, starting, you know, focusing on well-being, focusing on public mental health and prevention, uh, on, on psychology, you know, social psychology. Um, a lot, there are a lot more programs now than there were a few years ago. So regardless of how long this interest and focus on mental health will remain for at the population kind of level, we have gained a lot, um, at the very least, a new generation of professionals that are kind of currently being trained and will go out into this world with this kind of mindset and education. Um, and this is kind of what you want to achieve when there is a window of opportunity, as I call it, a window of opportunity for a space, because it, it does not last forever. Yeah. Um, but that's what you want to achieve. This, this is the route to sustainable change. 
yeah sort of taking not taking advantage but making the most of that attention that obviously is on the topic at the moment like you see it and again I think similarly for myself being in this work there is an element of bias and potential for there to be an echo chamber where you are just surrounding yourself with people having these conversations so am I just mingling with more people who have these conversations or is the conversation happening but I think as you've said through that engagement with mental health awareness week and I mean I always use my parents as a good barometer like if I'm having a conversation with my dad about this then it must be on his radar which it wouldn't be because he's not on Instagram and he doesn't follow me on Twitter and all of this stuff so um (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so no it's definitely I think there's been such a positive shift and what, what I'd love to talk about as well, because I think while it has been so positive and I would never want to be doom and gloom about the, the topic to, to too much of an extent, I think obviously with what we've seen happening with the pandemic and the potential mental health fallout and that we're already starting to see, and also recently with the new statistics coming out around suicide, it feels to me and I've had conversations with other people in this space and the the feeling and the overwhelming feeling seems to be frustration and frustration that the conversations are happening. These conversations are happening. The awareness and the engagement is on the rise, but the statistics aren't matching up and, and more and more people seem to be struggling with their mental health. More and more people seem to be losing their lives to suicide. So what is the extent of I suppose two questions here. What is the extent of what is ultimately a pandemic in its own right and, and a, a serious mental health crisis? What is the extent of that? And also, where are we going wrong? If you know we feel like these conversations are on the rise and people are much more aware, but the stats aren't lining up, like where is that that mismatch between the two? Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting area to have, you know, a very serious um, think on. And um, we knew that's well before, well before the pandemic with the official statistics that um, uh, the UK has, which is not, which is not too dissimilar, I should say, to many of the, many, uh, you know, most of the other countries in the world. Um, we had about one in six people every week experiencing diagnosable levels of a mental health problem. Um, so... One in six, what does this mean for the UK? 10 million people, you know, 10, 11 million people, um, possibly more. Um, and I think this is where the problem starts. The problem starts in that we have this illusion, if you like, that we will be able to address problems that are faced by over 10 million people every week just through building more hospitals or getting more beds available or, you know, having more helplines or whatever else, which are all, they're all really important, don't get me wrong, but they will, we will never have the capacity within kind of a healthcare, you know, crisis response system to deal with that level of distress that actually exists and the kind of all these fluctuations that kind of exist in the general population all the time. Um, so one of the things that we have been doing wrong is, is that we have been focusing too much on the crisis end of the spectrum when it comes to addressing mental ill health. Um, the second thing that we've been doing wrong um, is, and we see that, I think a lot of people would say, and to an extent they're right, that 
we have, there's more understanding and awareness and diagnosis of mental ill health. And maybe this is why the numbers are getting higher, but this is not hundred percent correct. In some cases, it does explain some of the increases we're seeing, but in others, it doesn't. For example, we've seen in uh, sort of in young girls, um, young girls more generally as a population group, which I mean, it's quite a diverse group, but kind of if we take it as, as a whole, um, it's the group where we see the most rapid increase in mental health problems um, than any other kind of population group. Um, and we know why, we know why it's, um, there are a lot of pressures from every aspect of our society. You know, there is a lot of commercial pressures. There are um, body image, you know, there's, there's many issues. And then we have, the issues, you know, around men's mental health, which I know you've, um, you know, you've tackled beautifully in this in this podcast with other guests, and um, we're not really recording these issues around men's mental health as well. Uh, so we're not really sure how things are 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 going um, in in many cases. So, and the third kind of problem is that a lot of the a lot of the mental a lot of mental ill health is actually coming from how we are struck, have structured our societies and our communities. Um, for many people, mental health distress is a result of witnessing lives that they can never possibly achieve themselves. And a lot of these lives are curated and, and fake, um, but we're still promoting them and, and kind of um, using them. And I think it's, this is one aspect, there's the aspect of quite kind of um, uh, persistent inequality things. If you look at things like racism and discrimination and um, uh, sexism and, and um, uh, discrimination against people with the basis of their sexuality or, or whatever else, I think the, these are quite persistent issues. Again, we've made progress, but um, not enough at a structural level. Um, so all these are quite fundamental causes of mental ill health or causes of not understanding how to address, you know, that tidal wave of, of mental health problems that are increasing. And um, we're still not getting it right in many ways, unfortunately. Yeah, I think um, I think about the conversations that I've had for the podcast and also my own experiences and conversations that I have outside of the podcast as well. And whether we're talking about you know, there'll be an episode where we're talking about the impact of social media, or there'll be an episode where we're talking about the impact of uh, traditional notions of masculinity or body image. And as you've sort of really nicely summarized there, those all come from the same place, which is how we've constructed society. And as a result, there is conditioning that leads to a certain expectation of self in whatever format that when that's yeah. not met, that is where this anxiety or stress or depression or whatever it might be starts to come from and as well from from my own perspective i think um within that if we look at capitalism as a structure um and as much as i don't want to get into this like a huge amount of depth because it would be above my pay grade but i think in any society where the measure of growth, the measure of success is GDP and GDP yeah. alone. That's never going to be conducive to happiness because you are, again, conditioning people to think that success, basically success and 
happiness are conflated. So if you yeah, are successful, yeah. you will be happy. And so many people will attest to the fact that that just isn't true in every case. Like there are cases, I'm sure. So yeah, I'd love to get your take on, on kind of that big picture, yeah. I guess. Well, that's, that's really important. Um, I think it's um, Robert Kennedy had said that GDP measures, you know, everything except what's important or something like that. I'm probably paraphrasing it, but um, I think this is really important. I, and I'll give you an example. I'll explain that bigger picture with an example. Um, I, we, I'm working a lot internationally and kind of networking a lot internationally. And um, one of the interesting things we've seen in the past few years has come from New Zealand and um, New Zealand, they had a couple of sort of a couple of events of real, really severe kind of trauma, collective trauma in the past few years. They've had a couple of big earthquakes and um, uh, one of them was in uh, Christchurch and uh, in Christchurch had another, um, uh, had a mass shooting outside a mosque. So, um, so there was this huge, following especially the, the, the earthquake in, in Christchurch, there was this big move in um, that part of New Zealand to kind of help and rebuild stuff and people were moving there to support and, and they were donating, you know, money and, and stuff and, and, and whatever else. Um, and obviously, um, this will sound cynical, but things like, you know, a lot of funerals were happening and, and again, so there was a movement of capital in various kind of ways um, to try to rebuild, you know, their, their country or that part of their country. And so a year later, or a couple of years later, they saw GDP was increasing. So they were like, how, how is our measure of how we're doing as a country improving when we are still, you know, grappling with such intense trauma? You know, our, our citizens are not happy. There's so much trauma. Um, and I think this is kind of what led them to be the first country in the world to, um, to change their main kind of measure of how they um, see improvements as a nation and kind of turn to well-being and, and what we call the well-being economy. Um, so it's, it's a really good point around GDP, you know, and what are we measuring? You know, what, are we, what do we care for as a country, as a society? Um, do we care about, you know, the fact that, well, actually, if there are a lot of funerals happening, that means GDP is increasing because... You know, that's, I know it sounds terrible, but that's, that's, it's one of the measures, you know, it's part of the, um, uh, how it is. Uh, or do we care that actually people are, are experiencing distress, they're experiencing trauma, you know, a lot of people do not live lives that they think are worth living. Um, and, and we cannot change that with more money in services. We cannot change that with uh, uh, improving crisis services. We can only change that by um, starting from a whole kind of society, you know, seriously look at um, our society. Yeah, and I, I we had a little chat before we came on air about how I can occasionally be quite negative about the government when it comes to this stuff. And I think it would be very easy to point the finger, but thinking about it now, regardless of who the prime minister is if you as the prime minister of the uk are stepping into a role where the success of the country is based on gdp then you will put policy in place that supports that goal and so really if you're trying to perform well in inverted commas then that is what you're going to do and it isn't really it's it's on all of us and it's on the system to to make that change and that shift that for example new zealand have in order to then you move the goalposts so that you can then change the policy and from i suppose being in this role that you're in from the conversations that you're having with 
you know, government and whoever else it might be. Mm. Is there an appetite? Like, is there an appetite to make this change? Because I think the evidence and the research is almost impossible to ignore at this point, but it seems to get ignored in some way at the end of the day. The problem is, I'm not 100% optimistic. <laughs> the, the problem is that prevention is, is a hard political sell. The, the reason for that is when you invest more in prevention, when you invest more in public health, you are probably going to see benefits after your political term has finished. You know? <laughs> so you're not going to see benefits before the next election. Um, and, and that's a problem. So you have to campaign again. And on the one hand, you can say, oh, you know, I built another hospital. Um, or you could say, you know, I took these measures that in five, or in five to 10 years will improve the well-being, you know, of everyone, you know, of all the, you know, all the black community or, or whatever else. And, um, and people don't choose to do it. It's, it's, a, it's a brave political choice and politicians are rarely that brave and, and bold to make these choices. Um, and I think the public does not necessarily also understand that um, quite often these are the choices that are needed um, uh, longer term. Uh, so I think, I think it's a difficult area and we're trying really strongly with strong advocacy and a lot of people with lived experience, you know, are, are, are really strong advocates on, on prevention, which is great. Um, but, but it is a difficult area and I'm not sure that we're moving to this direction necessarily. I think that globally, both in the UK and globally, um, some of that public health thinking is threatened at the moment. Um, and um, I don't think that, that this will be the case forever. And I think that, you know, with some with certain political faces and, and people, this comes and goes and, and it changes and also with other kind of global events and circumstances. Um, but we have to keep working and being very clear and very strong in this space because it's harder. It's, it's a harder sell than um, others. Yeah, it's, it's going to take, I think, as, as we've touched on in different forms, it's going to take significant change to make that shift and significant change isn't an easy thing to make happen. And it yeah. takes, you know, um, it takes someone, I think, I'm sure she has her pitfalls, but it takes someone um, like Jacinda Arden to, to change things properly. Um, and I mean, you only have to look at how, how New Zealand have dealt with COVID to, yeah. to kind of see that there are different ways of doing things um, that seem to work better. Um, but, you know, the systems are so established that they can be hard to, hard to budge. Yeah, and, the, and there's interest, you know, to be, to be honest, a lot of people who don't want change, they have an interest in things not changing. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of things that are um, wrong, you know, with, with the US, but, you know, it's, for me, it's interesting because it is so much clearer over there who has an interest in what. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, why change is not happening uh, in relation. And I think a lot of areas of life, as, as we've mentioned, you know, are related to, to mental health. Um, so I think, yeah, in many cases, there is the extra problem. It's not just that it's not political will. It's that there is an interest to keep things as they are because some people are benefit are benefiting from um, the current status quo. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, it comes up in, in various forms, whether you're having a conversation about mental health, whether you're having a conversation about the system more broadly, whether it's about COVID, like there are always, um, it seems, very rich people who can continue to get richer if things stay the same 
and unfortunately they seem to also hold the the power at the end of the day so um it's not the most optimistic message but i do i personally and i'm sure you wouldn't be doing this work as well if you didn't have a, a belief that things could change and can change yeah, and, and we've seen a lot of change, and that's why we're, we you know we we keep going. You know, we, we, it's uh, because we've seen things changing. We've seen things slowly, but the change change is slow. And I want to encourage you know a lot of people who would be listening to you, you know, would be activists in their own right, you know, and advocates for mental health advocates in their own right. And I don't want them to be discouraged because they are the ones that are bringing change. I'm I'm kind of providing some of the tools, you know, and maybe some of the evidence that that can be used, but. Um, you know, proper proper mental health activism and, and advocacy is what is bringing change in change in the longer term, uh, and I certainly see that, and I'm certainly witnessing that as we speak. Uh, so I don't want people discouraged, uh, but we have to be persistent and we have to be patient. Absolutely, absolutely, these things do take time. Um, so to come back to, I guess, a bit of a, an underlying theme there around prevention. So. I think I've definitely seen from from personal experience and unfortunately from stories that I've heard some of the issues around tackling this at the the point at which there is a problem or a crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear tragic stories of of people getting diagnosed with depression, for example, and then through public health put on put on a, a waiting list to see a therapist and given an antidepressant prescription, and they're on that wait list for six, eight, ten weeks, and yeah. by the point they get by the time they get the chance to to have that kind of treatment or therapy they they've sadly taken their own life and that i think is you know one of the most and it unfortunately not a an uncommon story and it's so tragic so there is obviously a need for prevention and i know we're both passionate about that but from from your work and the work that the foundation are doing what does what does that look like what is proper prevention and you know the the stuff that you are pitching day in and day out and working on day in day out what does that look like yeah uh, there there are many faces that prevention can take um and i think you know this particularly interests quite often to men's mental health because we we as men tend to not ask for help very early um and we kind of you know um educated and and influenced by our family and society to be the strong ones, you know, and kind of uh, persevere and, and not show weakness. And quite often, uh, there are a lot of men who ask for help, and they cannot find help in the system. Um, and there's a lot, a lot of tra- tragic stories. Um, so prevention could take a lot of different steps, it could have a lot of different faces. Um, we, we have to, if we consider maybe one's journey through life, um, for me, there is an opportunity for prevention at every single stage in life. So preschool with family formation, you know, with um, uh, even, you know, a lot of us often talk about the first thousand days of life. We kind of take the uh, pregnancy period in the first kind of two years as a kind of thousand critical period of, of a thousand days. Um, parent ed, pa, pa, Parenting education, uh, educating parents to be, um, uh, you know, increase their emotional literacy, understand, you know, early, early life attachment, um, you know, what, talking about mental health with their children. So that, that would be a preventative measure. Um, we go into school, um, schools um, have, we know that the students who 
um, have better mental health are the ones that are doing better at school, they have better attainment, better achievement, uh, educational achievement. Um, they're seeing through their education, you know, they're finishing their education, they get uh, good grades. So well-being support in schools, um, good mental health literacy, uh, teaching, teaching about self-care um, in, in schools. Again, you know, that, that could be one phase of uh, prevention. Um, in workplaces, um, similarly, I think, you know, there are a lot of toxic workplaces, uh, bullying and, um, you know, long hours and, and toxic stress. Um, tackling any of those uh, is a preventative intervention, you know, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> is, is an intervention into improving mental health. Um, same with some hard, you know, some groups that we're not engaging as, as much quite often. So, you know, if you think of children who are in care, if you think of older people who are in housing, um, adults who are unemployed, um, you know, what kind of access are we giving to early psychological support before someone gets into, you know, that point of maybe suicidal thinking or, or um, you know, very severe um, distress. Um, how do we build community? How do we build connection? I think connection is a is a really important um, you know preventative program. <laughs> can we can we enable that better um, at a local community? Um, access to green spaces. You know, we know that nature has a nice restorative and and protective effect on humans. Um, are we harnessing it enough? Are are we allowing people to to be able to have good access to green spaces? You know, wherever they live and um, and be and have it within easy reach, um, and then obviously we have the big structural thing. We have the big kind of uh, policy things. You know how um, we and again, you know, shifting from GDP to well-being as a key measure of how we're doing as a country. That's a big preventative program. Um, or um, we've we've done a lot of work on body image, for example. So diversifying the. Um, kind of images that we use of, of people, you know, on programs on everything from advertising to Love Island to, uh, you know, the big, big billboards on the streets and things like that. Um, that would help, you know, if, if you're walking around the street and you can relate to the people that you see advertising stuff or, or you know, being in shows or in, in uh, on TV or in cinema or whatever else, that, um, that means, you know, we're taking away some of the shame that one might feel because they're different and there is a lot of shame in being different unfortunately in our societies i'm not saying that this is you know that this is normal but it is actually expected you know and, and because we construct that we construct certain ideals around skin color and and body size and and things like that um so sorry that's a long-winded long-winded <laughs> response but i i think you know people don't necessarily understand prevention and i want to my message is prevention is is in everything you know is 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 in and it's not necessarily that obscure thing that we're trying to fix something that a lot of people think is is not really fixable but um it's pretty much in everything if we think about all the spaces that we spend our most of our lives in um, that could have an impact on our mental health if that impact is positive that's prevention that's successful prevention yeah i think there's there's so much and uh, I'm glad you gave as, as full an answer as you did, because I think there are so many tangible things, both on an individual, obviously it'd be it, fantastic to implement some of this stuff at a, you know, a public level, but even on a personal level, there are things, you know, talking about connection. It's one of the, I, for me, one of the most important things, like we built such a 
and again it comes back to the the societal structure but we've built such an individualistic um technologically driven culture where it's personal success above everything else and any connections that you do have are being replaced by unfortunately conversations over screens which don't have from from research as well do not have the same effect on your well-being as proper human interaction and so i think there's so much that people can can take away from that so in terms of i suppose the the situation we find ourselves in right now um has has the work that you're doing changed at all do you and and is there is the conversation different or is it, has it just been brought forward and amplified? Um, there is not a single response to this. It's not, it's not a, you know, an either or mm. there's been a big positive and a big negative. I think in terms of the conversation of not, not in terms of people experiencing, you know, distress, mm. but in terms of the conversation, the big positive is, is the first pandemic and large scale epidemic, not just pandemic in the history of the world that we also have an interest in mental health. You know, there is a discussion about mental health in the context of this pandemic. That's huge. I know, I know a lot of people that seems natural, but that's huge. <laughs> there was not a discussion about mental health, you know, when um, uh, we've had large scale epidemics in other places or, or in other settings or in previous years. Um, so that's really important. Uh, and there's been some investment as well, especially at local level and, and or organizations themselves have been spending a lot of kind of time and, and resource. Um, then the downside is um, that there is there is a, there is this historical legacy in public health. The public health has emerged from this history and research of trying to tackle infectious diseases. And in recent years, we've changed the definition. We've changed how we see public health. We've talked about public mental health. We've talked about public health being kind of, you know, about what we build as a society so that everyone can achieve optimal health. Um, but now part of the conversation is shifting back into infection control. It's important, of course, don't get me wrong, that we need the measures and the vaccines and, you know, and all this kind of work and research, but it's not just that. And there are certain parts in governments around the world, in um, organizations, in funders, that are shifting a lot back into this, you know, public health is all about infection control. Let's just invest in that. There will not be a vaccine for, for mental health after the pandemic. We, we cannot, we won't be able to solve, you know, everything that the lockdown and the measures and the unemployment and the distress and the loneliness that this pandemic has caused with a vaccine, I'm afraid, um, in the same way that we hope we will be able to do with, um, with the virus. Uh, so, um, but because there is this conversation and it's still ongoing, uh, we we remain kind of optimistic. You know, there are a lot of strong influencing voices to keep mental health into this conversation. Does that all make make sense? Like, I, I think yeah. this is what I'm experiencing at the moment. As yeah, absolutely. I think it, I, I suppose it's similar to the way in which the conversation has grown over the last five, ten, however many years. In that it's now a part of the conversation in a way it never was before, which is, as you rightly said, a positive. The, the negative being that there is going to be a big impact and we're very good at focusing on the um, tangible acute issue at hand and less, and this is why prevention I think is hard because it, it is that delayed 
like the results are slightly delayed you can't just yeah slap a plaster on it or poke someone with a vaccine and and that's it it's like this doesn't just go away overnight and so that is harder for people to get their head around and and work towards because you know as humans we we like you know quick wins and quick fixes and and success and so yeah that that makes complete sense and i think i again as you know being optimistic the fact that the conversation is happening i think is so important and and such a big bit of progress so it's definitely yeah i think um hopeful more than anything that that these conversations are happening now we are unfortunately coming towards the end of our time and i'd love just to sort of wrap up with a, a kind of i suppose more traditional less yeah. slightly less deep interview questions um so from a as an individual how how do you day-to-day manage your mental health like what does that look like for someone who is you know in this world in this space at a very individual level how do you how do you look after yourself i should say it's a lifelong journey looking after our mental health i, I don't think we're, we easily become expert uh experts on, on ourselves um i think for me there are a few things that i i tend to have you know obviously connection is really important for me i am uh spending quality time with with my wife at home that's that's really important for me um, keeping some time to myself and you know by um, nature I'm, I'm more introverted so I kind of have to have some time for recovery and I, I need that little, little long time for recovery um, if I'm able to um, get to nature I, I would do that if it's a park or a leafy street or whatever it is I will I would I will go out and, and um, have a little walk um, and then kind of, you know, exercise where I can invest in some hobbies, you know, maybe cooking every now and then, you know, something um, nice. So, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a um, you know, trying, you know, try, trying to keeping um, a priority for, um, I think we, we need to keep ourselves as a priority. I, I, I read this nice saying, you know, when, when you're helping others, if you're not helping yourself, you're not offering, you're not offering them your best self you know you're, you're the best that you can um, that you can give them so that's it's really important it really is yeah i um it's a, a complete cliche but i always come back to the um oxygen mask analogy and yeah. being on the plane and having to put your you know that you always get told to put your own oxygen mask on first because you're not gonna be able to help anybody else if you if you don't help yourself so yeah. um i think as brits we're very good at um putting other people first and and being overly polite in doing so or thinking that's the right thing to do and i think it becomes quite difficult for us as as a society to to think about even thinking about helping yourself would conjure up connotations of selfishness yeah. and no one wants to be selfish but in order to give you have to also be in a position to do so so i think that's yeah sage advice and um definitely something that i have to remind myself of pretty pretty regularly um, <laughs> And I can see it's it's probably one of my favorite questions because it, it helps to fill my reading list. But I can see a, a beautiful library behind you. Um, and whether it's from, you know, this space or or outside of this space, are there any any maybe a book that that you would recommend to, to listeners? Um, a single book. That's a difficult question. <laughs> um, a lot of my a lot of my early reading is uh, is Greek, obviously, because I am from Greece originally. But uh, 
in terms of something um, uh, recent, um, I liked, I really liked, for specific people interested in the whole conversation around race and, and mental health more broadly, but in our society more broadly, I like the book Superior. Um, it's about the return of race science, as it's called. Um, I like the books by Matt Haig, um, How to Stay Alive is, a, I think, a classic one by now. Um, uh, I do enjoy some, some books around leadership. I think Brene Brown has done some, some really beautiful work there. Um, Anthony Cassosi, a person who I'm really closely connected to, has written The Leadership Shadow, which is about, I think, especially your, your men listeners will enjoy that, those that are really hard at work and often, you know, over overdriven and exhausted. I think mm. it's, a, it's a really good book for that. So, yeah, just a few. Yeah, no, I think it's, I, I would probably find it impossible to, to pin down one. I normally fall back on... Um, Lost Connections by Johan Hari is is normally my yeah. go-to, which is yeah, he's great. You know, he's great. Given some of the stuff we we discussed around connection, I think is a a bit of a bible when it comes to reminding us of, yeah. of that stuff. Um, and and last but not least, if if people want to find out more about yourself, but also the foundation, where where should they go? Yeah, well, we we have our website mentalhealth.org.uk, but we we're in all social media, we're very active on social media as an organisation, quite strong on. Uh, engagement there. I'm, I'm on Twitter as well, A. Kusulis. Um, and I'm always happy, you know, I, I always like if people are asking, are sending me questions and, and you know, their interests and um, yeah, I always enjoy that. But um, there's a lot of stuff happening with the Mental Health Foundation online, on Instagram, on Twitter and Facebook. And I think, you know, people can find something they enjoy there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much again. I'm very, very grateful for you, you sharing your, your experiences and, and your wisdom with us. And uh, yeah, ultimately, I think there's some some great advice and some some great wisdom in there from um, from your experiences. So yeah, I really appreciate you being here and um, thank you. Oh, thank you, pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me as well. So that is it for today's episode of Man Down. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always. Tune in every Sunday for the next episode of Man Down with our next inspirational guest. If you want to get in touch or if there's anyone that you think should be on the podcast, you can reach out directly on Instagram at jamie.clements underscore or by email on jamie at mandownpod.co.uk.